0: stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: So now on The Innovation Show, recognized as one of the 50 leading business thinkers in the world, Whitney Johnson is an expert on disruptive innovation and personal disruption. She is author of Dare Dream Do, Disrupt Yourself, and the focus of today's show, build an a team welcome Whitney
0: thank you Aiden. so happy to be here
1: it's great to have you back on the show I love this book and you can see the progression across your work from dare to Do to disrupt yourself and now to build an a team I loved the way you've put more and more of yourself into the book
0: Thank you. I'm so, so happy to hear that.
1: The Disrupt Yourself podcast is going from strength to strength as well. So I'll, I'll link to the podcast as well for our listeners. Let's jump into it. I loved the story you open up with of Norm Larson, and I'd love if you share that with our listeners.
0: Okay, I'm going to, and I'm going to nestle it within another story so that that will allow us to pick up this theme of, of building a team. So, so what I want all of your listeners to do right now is suppose for just a moment that you've picked up the phone and it's a call from a headhunter. And it's for a job that sells a product invented 60 years ago. So at the time, it was a really important invention. It kept expensive rockets and missiles from rusting. Um, But that was 60 years ago. So let me tell you the story of that story from 60 years ago, and then I'll jump back into this idea of building A-team. So it's 1953. There's a startup in San Diego. They're focused on the space age. We've got incredible technology, missiles and rockets flying farther than ever before, but the technology had a major problem, which is it was made of metal and metal rusts. So Norm Larson, who you just mentioned, who is the chief chemist, he had this idea. He's like, okay, can I come up with a chemical compound that's going to keep the metal from rusting? He needed something that would displace the water, keep it from clinging, so it would just roll off the metal like like water off a duck's back. So he tries 10 times. He tries 20 times on the 40th try. He finally gets it. He's now got this product that they were using. Um, they were producing it for a company called Convair division of general dynamics, who was making NASA's Atlas missile. Then something very funny happened. People started sneaking this solvent or this product home. And so he's like, wait a second. I think we might have something else here. This isn't just about rockets. So he goes back to the lab. He puts it in an aerosol can. And in the in 15, 1959, the very first spray can is launched. It's WD-40. Super exciting. Today, they have 80% share of the market. But since then, again, since 60 years ago, not much has changed. And so the question I would ask you and all of your listeners, if you get a call from a headhunter who's telling you not much has changed or you've got this product and it's not google would you even be interested would you entertain the opportunity i think most of us wouldn't but what if you then learned that people love to work at this company they love working there and engagement scores are at 90 percent plus for me the question is why is that the case and how did that happen and so that's what i wanted to know when i interviewed the ceo gary Ridge. This to me was a perfect company to test my hypothesis that if you will let people learn to go where they've never gone before intellectually in terms of their learning, they will stay at your company. So Gary Gary Ridge tells me three senior leaders at his company, they started as a receptionist, one's now the company's brand manager. And when we administered our diagnostic, we found that 60% of the people there believe that they can satisfy their career goals without ever leaving. This is a company, and this goes really to the heart of my ideas, that develops their people through repeated personal disruptions. They allow them to learn and then leap and then repeat. And over the past 20 years, the market cap for WD-40 has actually gone from $250 million to $1.6 billion. And for me, for anybody who's looking at this, it's like not bad for a company that sells a can of oil.
1: It is the perfect way to start this book. What I found amazing is that in the USA, 33%, only 33% of people feel engaged in the work and internationally, the figures 15%. And yes, you call it out in the book. WD 40 is at 93% and why that is. And you talk about how we need to disrupt ourselves, but also there's an onus on the company to disrupt us.
0: Exactly. It, we have to be willing to disrupt ourselves. And, and actually, that really goes to the, the core, the, the, f- the foundational reason for writing this book is after I wrote Disrupt Yourself, people would say to me, I get it. I got it. I'm willing to disrupt myself. But I need you to persuade my boss to let me disrupt myself. Or if I am the boss, how do I get my people to disrupt themselves? And so build an A-team is really about How do you create an ecosystem where people are able to disrupt themselves and they're actually even encouraging and requiring that people are learning and leaping and repeating, knowing that if they do, even though it seems like it will hurt them in the short term if they let people go try something new, that in the long term, they're not only going to ship more product, people are going to be so all in that they will be more innovative and it will accrue to the benefit of the company
1: you work with world leaders, global CEOs, you ask these questions and the CEO will often go, how can I get my people to disrupt themselves? Meanwhile, the people are going, how can I let my boss disrupt me? And and I found that mismatch really interesting.
0: Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what happens is it's the innovators dilemma with people. So if you think about it, um, any sort of company knows as they grow and get bigger and their margins expand, that they need to find ways to innovate, but they don't want to, or feel like they don't need to because margins are expanding and revenue is growing. And so then they don't, and then they don't, and then they don't, and then they get disrupted. And I think the same thing happens with, with any sort of boss. Like every single person on the planet wants to be a good boss. Like they want to be a great place to work. We all do. And yet, we then have this situation where we've brought people in; they bought into our vision. They're like, "Yes, I can bring my dreams to work." But then you've got product to ship, and you've got these deadlines, and you've got these budgets. And so, all of a sudden, you, as a boss, become that person, that boss that no one wants to look work for. And so, then the revolving door starts. And so, that's why it's innovator's dilemma for people because you do lose in the short term if you let people jump to a new learning curve. But if you don't let them jump, you also lose because. They either will leave um, because they're bored once they're at the top of a learning curve, or they'll get complacent, which in some ways is even worse because bored and complacent people they do not innovate. They they get disrupted, and and so it's it's really important um, if you're thinking for the long term, you will allow your people to and, and encourage them and require them to after every every few years to jump to a new learning curve inside of your organization.
1: It's like. You're so busy working in the business that you're not working on the business. And I I actually took this to myself when I was reading your book. I was kind of going, how can I apply this to what I'm doing right now? And I realized here I am reading these books for these shows all the time. And I have not read a book on how to read efficiently. And I was kind of going, I need to take a step back, but now I actually can be way more efficient going forward. And I kind of took that as a metaphor. For business, that that's what we do not do. We don't take a step back to go, wait a second, how can I improve? Which brings me on to this point is you talk about jumping the S curve a lot in the book. And I think so many people in our audience won't understand that because it's just not common parlance. And it'd be great, Whitney, to if it came from you to give an explanation to try and get this into the minds of the listeners of what that means.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So One of the big ah ahas that I had when I was um, investing with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School is that this S-curve that we applied to investing or we used it to identify investing opportunities that had been popularized by E.M. Rogers 50 years ago um, could help us also, actually, it could also be applied to people to understand the psychology of disruption or psychology of change. And so what I'd love for all of all of your listeners to do for just a moment is to picture an S in your mind. And um, at the bottom of that S, you're going to, if you think about from left to right, the X axis is time. And then from bottom to top, the Y axis is you're improving. If you think about the base of that S for a while, typically around six months, you're at the low end of the S and you're working hard and not much is happening. It's just moving along in time and it's not moving up the Y axis. And so this is the era of inexperience. And you're typically at this place for six months to a year. And the reason that it's important to know that is that if you know that you're going to be working hard and not much is happening, and this is based on the law of exponential growth, you won't get discouraged. You'll just say, Oh, I'm supposed to feel like nothing's happening because I'm just figuring everything out. So that helps you avoid discouragement. And it also helps you as a boss to not get impatient and think, wow, this person's really a dud. Why did I hire them? It's just that they're new and they're figuring stuff out. And there's actually a lot of benefit to their figuring stuff out because they're asking questions like, why do we do it like this? Now, after you put in that six months to a year, You move into that sleek, steep back of that S. Just think about in your mind that sinuous part of the S. It's just moving up. And this is where you're now in a role on a project for a year. And you stay in this place for two to three years. And this is where you're now very competent. This is what I call the sweet spot of the S. And you are um, very confident as well. And so, this is where ideally on any given team, you want to have 70% of your people here at any given time, 15% of your people at the low end of the S and inexperienced, 70% in the sweet spot. And then at the top of the S, after you've been in, in a role for three to four years, again, you've got this base of an S, so time is passing and not much is happening. This is the era where you've got mastery. You know exactly what you're doing. But because you're no longer learning, your brain is not firing off dopamine, you start to get bored. And so because you're bored, this thing that looks like this plateau, and for a time it's a Vista survey to survey all you've accomplished. What looks like a plateau very quickly becomes a danger zone and potentially a precipice. And so for you, you need to jump to a new curve after three or four years. It's the learn, leap, and repeat. Now, for us as, as a manager, now you know, okay, I know I've got 70% in the middle, 15% at the low end, 15% at the high end. If I have Too many of my people at the high end of the curve, that is a warning signal because you know what? All you need to understand is if your company is going to get disrupted or not, you just need to look at how many people are at the hind of the curve because again, bored and complacent people don't get innovate don't innovate they get disrupted. So, by understanding that, by managing your flock of S's, your big S's and your little S's, you can actually drive innovation on your team. You can avoid being disrupted if you will simply load balance where the people on your team are on their S curves.
1: So one of the interesting things, though, is like we saw that mismatch between how a leader saw his team and the team saw the leader. Likewise, we often say, oh, well, the problem is our people. And then we try to replace the people. And you, you put this beautifully You said something that I found incredible is when someone leaves, we rush to fill that role with an outsider, someone we actually know nothing about. While we could have somebody who is a gem in our midst, but we just haven't invested in.
0: Absolutely. And we do it all the time. We want that shiny, bright new object. And, and I think that there's, you know, one of the, one of the tenets of disruptive innovation is to play where no one else is playing. That's how you improve your odds by six times and your revenue opportunity by 20 times is a willingness to do that. And, and one of the ways that that can play out um, is is to play where no one else is playing by hiring where no one else is hiring. And and you can hire boomerangers and you can hire on-rampers and you can hire people who are self-taught. Um, to your point, there's a huge opportunity to hire people internally. Hire people that have some domain expertise, but if they move them into a different area, they could they could contribute in a very meaningful, interesting way because they're going to come at a problem from a very different perspective. What's difficult for most of us is that the people that we work with day in and day out, they become like wallpaper and we don't recognize their abilities. Or we have the Again, the innovator's dilemma with people of we need them right where they are doing what they've always done, and so it is really a challenge. Um, I I have you know I'm a small business owner, right? I've got about ten people working with me, um, and I'm continually having to think about that process of how do you load balance this curve, and when people get to the high end, what do you do? It is a real challenge, but we also know from the theory, from the research, that if you want to remain innovative, you will you will manage for that.
1: And you mentioned the brilliant case of Jim Skinner, for example. It'd be great to share that with our audience.
0: Yeah, so really interesting fellow. So he was the former CEO of McDonald's. And here's a guy who started out at McDonald's um, flipping burgers. Like, I mean, he literally started on the ground floor archetypal right starts at the bottom of the ladder and then he works his way up and so when he becomes a ceo one of the first things he does is he um, institutes a training program for people and one of the things he always wanted to make sure is that he had people who were ready today to be able to assume a role and then also people who were ready future so he had baked into his human resources strategy people who were at the top of the curve but then he also had people who were in the sweet spot or the low end of the curve getting ready to move up to the top of the curve so that when it was time for your top of the curve people to jump to do something new because you needed to have them into a new place so that they could again be innovative he was already always ready to go and um, as with so many um, other instances, we do our best work when we are willing to leverage the experiences that we've had and really tap into those experiences and figure out what kinds of learnings there are. Seeing ourselves as an N of one is we're never an N of one. We're always probably an N of many.
1: You know what I love to somebody like Skinner, for example, he probably just did this naturally. Mm-hmm. But what you do with this, book, you give us a framework for how to do this across businesses, because th- I think that's one of the things people lack is either they're closed to it, or if they're open to it, there hasn't been a framework. And this is what I loved about your book, that you give this framework for people to do it. So before we move on to mentioning how you could hire onto that curve, it'd be great to take a step back onto Disrupt Yourself book, because in that book, you give the responsibility to us as an employee, how to disrupt ourselves. You give seven stages of personal disruption, be great to touch on those, Whitney.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So So whenever you're disrupting yourself, and so you can go back to the learning curve that we talked about just a moment ago, is that um, one of the things that we do in our work is to be able to say, okay, how do you know when you're at the top of a learning curve? And so we've got this S-curve locator. And all of your listeners, if you want, you can go to WhitneyJohnson.com backslash diagnostic. And figure out if it's time for you to jump to a new learning curve, um, but then the question becomes: Is once you've jumped to that new learning curve, how do you climb it effectively? How do you move up, move up it as quickly as possible? What are your levers of change that you have in play so that you can manage through this this sometimes monumental change that you've you've decided to make? And so the very first lever is to take the right kinds of risks to move toward market versus competitive risk. And I mentioned that just a moment ago when we were talking about hiring. Um, Competitive risk with hiring would look like hiring someone who's got an Ivy League MBA. They've been doing the job for three years. You know they can do it. Um, But you're competing for them with lots of other people. And probably um, once they get in, they're going to be looking around because they're potentially overqualified. You play where no one else is playing. You take on market risk is where you hire on-rampers and internal candidates and People who are not um, necessarily your the natural candidate. And what's so good about that is that these options, they're not overpriced. They're not overpicked. They're often hungry with something to prove. And so by taking on that market risk, if in fact it turns out there's someone interesting there, you're going to get a lot more out of that person over the long term. So that's number one, take the right kinds of risks. The second one is to play to your distinctive strengths, not only what you do well, but what um, people around you don't. If, for example, you are really, really good at marketing um, and you're inside of an organization of 20 people who are really good at marketing. It's good that you're good at marketing, but what's going to allow you to move up that curve more quickly is if you're willing to put yourself into a situation where you're a marketer in a sea of people who know how to code, because now you've got this distinctive strength. And when you pair that distinctive strength with your um, playing where no one else is playing, you're much more likely to be, first of all, on the right learning curve, which is important, and then move up that learning curve quickly. Number three is the importance of embracing our constraints. We oftentimes think of constraints is something that if we could only do away with it, um, we would be able to move up the curve more quickly. And yet, um, it is our constraints. It's the friction that allows us to to move um, much more quickly. There's a wonderful story told of a a man who wanted to buy this truck, this Dodge Ram 2500 Hemi V8 engine, really, really powerful truck. And his investment committee his wife disagreed. So he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I persuade her that this is a really useful purchase that I made? So he decides naturally to cut and haul a load of firewood. So he drives up. It's early October. He's going up the mountain. There's snow. So the snow is getting deeper and deeper. The road's slicker and slicker. He's driving up. He finally stops and the truck gets stuck. It's like, okay how do I get myself out of this very worrisome situation? And my wife's going to tell, tell me, I told you so. So he says, okay, I'm just going to cut wood. I'll cut wood and I'll chop wood and I'll chop wood and I'll chop wood. And so finally, after several hours, he's got all this wood in the back of the truck and he thinks, okay, I'm exhausted. And because hope springs eternal, he says, I'm going to try one more time. So he puts the key in the ignition. He turns it on, he puts it into gear and the truck starts to inch forward. He gets unstuck, and he's able to drive back down the mountain. Well, it turns out that the load of firewood is—it um, was a constraint, and it's what gave him traction to drive back down the mountain. And what we need when we're try- trying to climb a curve is we need constraints to give us the friction in order to be able to move up our learning curves. So. We think we don't want them, we think we don't have enough time or money or resources, but in fact those constraints are what are going to allow us to move up. Number four really quickly is the importance of battling our entitlement of believing that we exist therefore we deserve or we didn't get something and we did deserve it. It's, it's this notion of understanding that No one is better than me and I'm better than no one. And, um, when a promotion comes to not say, oh, this isn't fair, why did this person get it? Instead to be genuinely happy for them, knowing that there's enough to go around and also knowing that, um, right at that point when you're in the sweet spot of the curve, we sometimes tend to think, well, this is the way things will and should always be. And we stop examining and thinking about what can we do better. We stop being Norm Larson, trying to figure out how am I going to find a compound that's going to keep the metal from rusting. So that's number four. And I'll do five, six, and seven really quickly. Number five is the importance of Stepping back to grow, you crouch before you jump, you bring a fist back before you, you punch. Um, and I'm sure that there's a metaphor in there somewhere, Aiden, in rugby. Um, there's always a backward movement before a forward movement. And it's the same when it comes to personal. What is it? What is it, Aiden?
1: The one I thought when I read the book actually was we used to get tested on a counter movement jump, which is you have to go down to go up every movement is that movement. You know, when you're running forward, you have to push off certain muscles. Some muscles are going back when the others are going forward. And it did actually resonate with me when I read it in the book. It's a brilliant one. I love that one. I really did. And I also, from a rugby perspective, loved the entitlement. I actually, Ireland, for example, where I, I live, is going through a real golden age of rugby And my huge belief, and when I read the book, it really resonated again, was that entitlement has been knocked out of the team and that the younger players, the players on the start of their S-curves are coming into that world where they're actually seeing this is an environment of gratitude and not entitlement. Oh,
0: that is so powerful. I love it. That's fantastic. That's a, a great example of the battling entitlement and then and then the stepping back to grow. And so this idea that the up and the down is part of personal disruption and and frequently when it comes to being able to move up a new learning curve or even a willingness to jump to a new learning curve, it's this notion that you have to step back in order to slingshot forward. It's just a part of the process.
1: What it actually said to me and it sung to my soul in a way was, you're going to have bad days as well. And that's okay. Cause you, mm. oftentimes when you're, when you're really working on your positivity and putting your best energy forward, you kind of get down on yourself when you're having a bad day, you kind of go, Oh, what did I do wrong? And then you actually realize that this is the way it works. Sometimes you have to go, go forward and then you accept it and actually as a result you go forward
0: well you know it's so funny that you say that just this morning i had this happen to me so i um finally i've been working off my laptop in my office and um, I finally decided to buy a really big monitor for my office, and um, my husband, darling man that he is, thought I'm going to set that up for her this morning, so it's ready to go. And instead of, but but instead of that being helpful to me, it was it was anxiety producing because I'm like, oh no, I've introduced another variable into my morning, and I've got to <laughs> figure out how to use this new computer and what does that look like. And when you made this comment about figuring out a more effective way to to read books in order to you know take a step back to figure that out in order to slingshot forward the thought that came to me is take a step back to be able to have this monitor work so that i've got this really wonderful screen to work with um, in order to slingshot forward sometimes it's better if we can time the steps back as opposed to being pushed back um but it's 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 a law of of, of how disruption works and, and, frankly, a law of how change works, which brings me to number six, and that's giving failure its due. I, I was thinking this morning, okay, so what's the – I just recently had to lay someone off, and I thought, what's the ROI on that failure? What's the ROI of my not having hired very well? And um, I think that giving failure its due of being able to look at what we haven't done well – and also being able to really iterate quickly around that allows us to move up the curve, curve more effectively, and um, and do it in a way that there's not shame because it's shame that actually limits disruption. It's not failure, and so when we can separate out the two of I'm doing an experiment, I'm figuring this out. My sense of self completely intact doing this experiment. Yes, another experiment, and keep going and not having that sense of self tied to to any sort of outcome. So that's number six, and then number seven is be driven by discovery, be willing to take a step forward to gather feedback and adapt. And, and it's interesting, because most of us know how to do that pretty intuitively in lots of areas of our lives. I mean, think about you start college, right? You think you're going to do one major. And then 90% of the world ends up in a different major than the one they started with either because they were undeclared or they simply changed. It always happens to us in our careers. Very few of us are exactly where we thought we would be. And so whenever any kind of change comes, as you think about how do you structure change and allow yourself to manage through it more effectively, it's important to allow discovery to be a part of that process. So those are the seven steps to Take the right risks, play to your distinctive strengths, embrace your constraints, battle your sense of entitlement. I love that example that you gave around the Irish rugby team, step back to grow, give failure its due, but obviously then choose success and then be driven by discovery at the top of the curve and at the bottom of the curve and actually all along the curve.
1: It's brilliant. So that's the onus on us as an employee, say that's the leader's onus for themselves as well they're almost like looking down as a master chess player on their people and kind of going, where are they on the S curve? Where do I need to move them, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's really a leader's job if they're managing people. And the next step, when you're hiring somebody, how do you use your framework for bringing people onto a new curve?
0: Yeah. So the way I think about it is that you want to hire for potential and not for proficiency. And so think about it, anybody who's ever invested in the stock market, you always want to buy low and sell high. And so the same thing applies when it comes to to hiring people. And one of the, the metaphors that I have in my mind that really helps me capture this is that there's a city called Butte, Montana. It's it's in the middle central part of the United States, and it's known as the richest hill on Earth. And the story behind that is quite interesting. In that, in the in the 1800s, there were claims of gold, and so you had all these speculators Russian, and um, they the early sort of discoveries were pretty disappointing, and so a lot of those early speculators sold their claims. The second round, though, of speculators, they discovered copper. And um, initially, copper was not very valuable, um, but when technology advanced and then electrical wiring became a thing and they needed copper, copper became extremely valuable. And so for the people who were looking for that quick hit, um, you know, get-rich-quick kind of opportunity that did not work but for the people who were patient it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so oftentimes I think when we hire we're hiring for gold and um when copper would actually do and there's a compelling case to be made for that. And so we want to look for people who um who have the potential but we're hiring for potential not for proficiency.
1: You mentioned this in the book as well the importance of vision. So you can't just bring somebody in, put them in a position and then leave them to it and then monitor them. They need a vision, a compelling reason to come to work every day. It'd be great to just touch a little bit on that.
0: Yeah. So I think that one of the things that happens is that we hire people and we just kind of expect them to go to work and suddenly magically read our mind and read the culture. And so so one of the things I, I really strongly recommend is that if you haven't done this already, the first week on the job, explain your vision. What's the why of the organization and and what's the why of your team? So if you've got a you need to do both. And, and I will say, Aiden, it's hard to do. I I realized even myself, and this is so important that we're able, when we're writing about these things to walk our talk is that I needed to sit down and say, okay, have I talked my team through what's the why of our organization, which by the way, is to make it safe for people to change. It's important to do, we rarely do it. And, And so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing I think is really important is to. Ask the person that you've just hired, what are they trying to accomplish personally in this role? So they hired, just as you hired them, they hired you as a boss. And so they're, they're handing you at some level their dreams. Now, they have to take responsibility for that. But if you have a sense of what they're trying to accomplish, what goals they have, it's going to make a big difference. And, and also to ask them, you know, what do you feel like you need from me to be successful? takes a lot of self-awareness to do that. But even asking the question gets you started having an important conversation. And then the third thing I would say is, is lay out your um, expectations and the rules and their hopes for their contribution. I think some people intuitively know how to manage up, but a lot of people don't. Um, and when we think of this idea of managing up, we think of um, that Play that was on, you know, fifty years ago. How to succeed in business without really trying? Where managing up was, you know, scheming and conniving and and fraud. And so, I think the w- simplest way to think about managing up is to sit down as a boss and say to them, um, "Here's here's what here's what I'm trying to get done. Here's what I need from you to help me get that job done. And if you will do that, then I will help you when it's time to jump to." a new curve, I will help you get that done. So help me help my help me get my job done. And then I will help you. And really be aware that there's a contract, understand that there's this constraint of they will be there in three to four years and then for three to four years. And then when that's done, if they have delivered for you, then you will deliver for them.
1: And I love as well, you give this great tip, and it's often something we overlook. So when somebody comes in new, they're coming in with no paradigm or no preconceived notions of the way things are done around here. And oftentimes they're not listened to, but the opportunity is to listen to them because they're on your team and they're calling stuff out that a customer might not call out.
0: Exactly. And, and I think what happens is it takes a lot of sense of self for you as the manager, because what's happening is that they've just started They haven't, at some level, earned the right to have an opinion because they're not proven yet. In fact, it's really interesting. There's a show on TV called Madam Secretary that I really enjoy a lot. They just brought this new um, employee and her name's Kat. And from day one, she was like really contributing, really had opinions, really thought X, Y, and Z. And as I was watching that, I thought this is not ringing true for me because all of the people on the team just embraced her and allowed her to like shine. And I thought, In what work environment does that happen, right? People come in and they're like, wait, you have all these ideas, these newfangled propositions. This is threatening me. This is threatening my status quo. So for you as a manager, it's really important to be able to say, okay, On the one hand, you don't know what you're doing. You're inexperienced. I need to be patient. Um, On the other hand, the fact that you are inexperienced, you're going to question why we're doing everything we're doing. This is a goldmine for me. This is a goldmine for our team. This is a goldmine for our company because you're going to point out opportunities for us to innovate, which again, by the way, takes patience because most of us don't like Pesky little three-year-old type questions, but that's a huge opportunity and a big offset to the inexperience that they have of being slow at whatever you've asked them to do
1: initially. You've got that person in, and then you know after six months or nine months or whatever it takes, you realize what they're good at, and then you you say this and this is stuff that we don't often think about, and we need to play to their strengths. So we need to discover what their strengths are, and it may not be the reason we hired them, or they may have evolved and maybe somebody more mature in your team and they may have evolved and you're realizing actually they're really good at this other thing. And as a manager, as a leader, we need to actually do that and play people in the positions that they can excel in.
0: Right. And I, I suspect actually this happened for you in rugby is someone will show up because it happens in the workforce all the time is that whatever we do absolutely best, Tends to be very reflexive for us. It's it's like it's like the air that we're breathing, and because it's human nature, and I think for a good evolutionary reason, whatever we do, absolute best, we don't tend to be aware of, um, and it's so easy for us, we don't value it, and so whenever we're um, presenting ourselves to the world of, you know, I'd like to come work with you, we tend to overemphasize the things that we've worked really hard to learn how to do and underemphasize the things that we haven't worked hard to learn how to do, even though those are the things that we do best. And so one of the jobs, I think an important job for a manager is to be on alert for that. And to, as you say, be discovery driven and really watch and observe and sort of, and figure out Okay, what is this person really good at? And just a really quick story I think illustrates this beautifully is for everybody who watches the NFL, the football, the Super Bowl super bowl you saw that there the coaches are talking to each other remotely well that may not have happened um and it was developed by a fellow ma- named john cave but it may not have happened if his boss michelle mckenna doyle had not been willing to do some moving around so she comes on board she realizes she looks at john cave and she's like he's really good at building things why is he spending all of his time on enterprise systems like payroll etc so she goes to him and says i want to move you and i want you to start building things um um, because this is what you do well. And he he didn't want to do it. He really resisted. He felt like she was taking something away from him, like it was a demotion somehow, as opposed to, to something positive. So she said to him, you know, trust me, you're going to be a great innovator. Let's just do this. He did trust her. He did do it. He is great at it. It's important for us to figure out what people's strengths are as a manager and then to also be able to persuade them that in asking them to do what they do best, this isn't a knock on them. It is, in fact, asking them to be able to climb a curve faster because they're playing to their strengths.
1: As you said there – He initially took that as a criticism or as I must not be doing my job well. And that really struck out to me that so many leaders don't communicate that or articulate that well to the person who's being moved for the better. They need to really get that across to them
0: exactly and 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 so so as a manager it's really important that we're able to to know how to articulate that and to be able to sell that to them in a way that they understand that you are valuing them you are not devaluing them
1: moving back to the worker now so i loved this i mentioned some of this beautiful language that you used in the book and i really thought about this one where you're saying somebody within the organization is trying to sell an idea or a new innovation for example and You talk about this, uh, about the idea of when you plant bulbs, they need to go through a winter of no growth. They need this incubation time before they can take off. Yeah, they do.
0: It can either just be cold or you can force the cold, but it doesn't matter. But they do need a period of, of hardship, a period of constraints in order for them to really be able to flower and to bloom into who they can be. Um, on the job and, and who they can be, period.
1: You talk about some of the masters of leadership and some great exemplars, but I really love the story of the VP of sales for LinkedIn, Dan Shapiro.
0: Yeah, isn't that amazing? Okay, let me tell it really quickly. So you've got this fellow, he's the, the VP of sales. He's one of 25 at the firm. Um, he's overseeing this billion dollar line of business. He has a thousand reports. So he's at the top of the curve absolutely um he'd started in linked at linkedin in 2008 he'd performed well so he'd moved up to that learning curve and in 2010 they have him jump to a new curve um, into sales where it's a 50 million dollar line of business and eight reports so it's 2010 now three years later he's moved up that curve and he's overseeing the billion dollar line of business um, and it's sales. So now he's, you know, this is a star performer, right? And so he goes to the CEO, Jeff Weiner. they're having a walking meeting, and he's, and he shares with him one of his dreams, which is to become a tech company CEO. And Weiner says to him, if you want to be a CEO, you're in the wrong job. You can't get there from here. <laughs> so after this huge bout of frustration, Dan Shapiro goes back, Back to Jeff Weiner, So it's about two months and he, you know, lots of thinking and soul searching. And he says, okay, I'm ready. Let's build great products. Now think about this, right? So he's saying, I am willing to go from being the VP with a thousand direct reports to an individual contributor with three reports and no guarantees based on the data. And LinkedIn has a lot of data. People don't move from sales, which is where Dan was to product management. So my question to all of your listeners is, is, if this is you, you're the manager, do you let your high performer jump? Do you actually do you let him jump? Well, Mike Gampson, his boss, and Jeff Weiner, he let him do it. So Shapiro says initially there were parts he was terrible at because, again, he's the loan of the curve, but there are also parts that he was amazing at. Here's the end of the story. Shapiro today is the VP of LinkedIn's $2 billion talent solutions and marketing business. He has sales, which formerly reported into him, as well as now product, so where he was the individual contributor. This step back was a huge slingshot for him but it was also slingshot for LinkedIn. And that's what you do at the top of the curve when you do it right. You let people disrupt themselves. And in letting people disrupt themselves, you as an organization lower your we're about to be disrupted score.
1: It's a phenomenal story. It's it's a real exemplar and a great way to finish and a great way to both see the vision of Wiener in, in LinkedIn and also of Shapiro, the willingness from both sides to disrupt Whitney, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always. I love this book. I'm going to link to it. i link to your podcast and all your other books. Author of Build an A Team, Whitney Johnson. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you.